Welcome to the USCCB First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Matthew Weldon. And I'm Mary McCluskey. Trying to be a faithful Catholic citizen, uh, I'm afraid to say, can often bring a lot of disappointment. It can be easy to become pessimistic about our efforts to build a culture of life, a culture that respects human dignity. Just think, for example, about how it felt recently when 14 Catholic senators voted no on what seemed to me to be perfectly reasonable restrictions on abortion. And yet, sometimes we do get good news. And I think we have reasons to be hopeful for more good news, or at least I'm hoping we're about to find out that we have reasons to be hopeful. Uh, Joining us today are two of our colleagues from the USCCB, Greg Schleppenbach is Associate Director of the Secretariat for Pro-Life Activities. The Pro-Life Office is active in efforts to achieve conscience protections for medical professionals. He's going to tell us about some of those efforts. Lauren McCormick is Associate Director of the Office of Government Relations. She's our representative for religious liberty issues on Capitol Hill. We are so glad to have both of you here today. Thank you for taking the time out of your days to come and talk with us. Thanks, Aaron. It's great to be here. Great to be here, Aaron. Thanks for having us. So now let's start with some of that good news. Lauren, tell us about the Federal Disaster Assistance Nonprofit Fairness Act. It's kind of a mouthful. It passed in the recent budget. But this was legislation that didn't necessarily make a lot of headlines, right? But we were certainly happy to see it pass. Just tell us what does it do? Tell us more about it. Yeah, Aaron, I'm excited to be able to come in and talk about something, a religious liberty piece of legislation that actually got enacted. It's it's really exciting. Yes. So it's great to be able to talk about a victory once in a while. And the Disaster Relief Fairness Act uh, came out in the recent Bipartisan Budget Act, which was just enacted. And what it basically said is the Federal Emergency Management Agency, whenever disasters strike, they have public assistance grants that go out to various community facilities to try to restore and repair and uh, help communities recover from the damage that disasters do. And in the past, houses of worship were excluded from being able to apply for these grants. And so what this legislation would do would make sure that houses of worship would are able to apply for those grants, those grants on the same terms as other nonprofit facilities had already been doing. So um, it's really about fairness for houses of worship, and that was really the core of the legislation. So Lauren, by houses of worship, you mean churches, anything else included generally under that category, houses of worship? Yep, churches, synagogues, mosques, anything that would qualify for that definition. And so as I understand it, uh, the legislation was introduced in 2012, right? In the week of, or in the wake of Superstorm Sandy, that's correct? That's right. There had been discussions about this issue all the way back to Hurricane Katrina, but the legislation came out in the wake of Hurricane Sandy. There was a lot of damage that was done to Houses of worships, houses of worship in New York, churches, synagogues, and so that's what really started a legislative push back in 2012. So I mean, it's taken a uh, a long time. Although I guess in the meantime, you've had like there weren't major disasters in the meantime, so it's, it only comes up when there's a disaster. But at the same time, I mean, it seems to me as somebody who's kind of an outsider to these sorts of things that it took a long time. 
And I'm just wondering if you can give us a sense of, of maybe why. I mean, before you joined us, you're, you recently joined us just uh, almost right out a month ago, I think. Uh, and before joining us, you worked as a congressional staffer. So you've seen up close kind of how Congress works. Why do you think it took so long or uh, what were the concerns of those who opposed it? I think is what I would like to understand, because when I hear you describe it, when I first heard about this, uh, I thought this seems like it should have been relatively easy, but it's, it wasn't or it's not. So give us a sense of what's going on there. Yeah, so it's a pretty common story that legislation, once it's introduced, it takes several years, several Congresses for Congress to actually act on it and get it enacted. The legislation was overwhelmingly passed by the House several years ago and then just didn't see any action in the Senate. Um, it, you know, It's unfortunate that it took another major disaster to really see Congress bring this up again. And the legislation was enacted as part of some additional funding to recover for those recent disasters. So, it, you know, I think um, the concerns were from folks who, who were concerned about separation of church and state issues. Um, that's really where the concern was. And then I think um, the the stories that came out in the wake of the recent disasters, Hurricane Harvey, et cetera, you saw houses of worship in Texas where people were going for shelter. Mm -hmm. And um, that, that gave a really compelling case mm -hmm. to why this legislation needed to be enacted. Now, I should preface the next question I'm going to ask uh, by saying that nobody in this room or on this podcast today is a lawyer. So I, so when I'm about to add, I, but I do wonder about how the Trinity Lutheran case might have affected things. Uh, maybe not at all. So, but in that case, just to, to remind listeners um, who, who didn't follow that case, uh, a Christian school, Trinity Lutheran uh, in Missouri had been denied access to state funding for playground resurfacing materials and, the state disqualified Trinity Lutheran because of its religious identity. And the Supreme Court ruled that the state of Missouri could not discriminate against the school simply because of the religious identity of the school. That's the bare bones, non-lawyer version of kind of what happened. Uh, do you think that that ruling might have helped at all? Uh, or do you think it was a non-factor? Like, did, would, that have, uh, would that have addressed some of the concerns of people who, who were who were concerned about the church-state separation issue? Or do you think, were there other factors, like did the composition of Congress change? Or, as you mentioned, the compelling stories that, uh, you know, when you see people of faith uh, kind of rising up to help uh, in these situations, it, it, seem, it just doesn't seem fair to say, well, everybody else, you know, the zoos and community centers and museums are all going to get help, but the houses of worship, uh, that, that sheltered people are not going to get help. Uh, you know, what was it that you think changed? Did, did Trinity Lutheran have anything to do with it or, or something else? The Trinity Lutheran case was absolutely critical in this ultimately getting done. And FEMA changed its policy in January as a result of an order from the court saying, this is a problem in light of the Supreme Court's ruling, and so you need to change their policy. 
FEMA did change their policy in January, which was great. And then that last piece of it, which is the enactment of the legislation, make sure that that policy can't go back to the way it was in future administrations. This is a permanent fix, not an administrative fix. And I think so the supporters of the legislation before felt strongly that the legislation was constitutional and there wasn't an issue with separation of church and state. But after this Trinity Lutheran ruling, we knew for sure that that was that was where the Supreme Court was on the question. And so they could point back to Trinity Lutheran and say, no, absolutely. These houses of worship should not be excluded from a generally available government benefit, such as the public assistance grants, in the same way that in Missouri, Trinity Lutheran couldn't be excluded from that preschool program. So good news all around. And it's one of those things that you don't... um you may not often think about if you're not following these sorts of issues just on a daily basis, that there's this, that, that kind of ripple effect. Uh, Cause I remember the Trinity Lutheran was also, case was also one that might not have been covered as much. It's not as, you know, it's not going to get the headlines that some of the other religious liberty cases get, but, but we were certainly excited about that and uh, to see this kind of effect that, um, that positive effects all the way down the line. Uh, it's just, like you said, it's we don't often get these these victories, so we pop the cork when we do get one. <laughs> it so. was a perfect storm, <laughs> yes. if I can say that. Oh, <laughs> oh. hey, <laughs> nice, good nice. one! Wow. <laughs> uh, now uh, let's look ahead. Uh, let, hopefully, the good feelings are going to continue. <laughs> um, <laughs> we can pray. Yeah, the Conscience Protection Act. Uh, I hope that people are going to be hearing a lot about this over the next few weeks. Uh, the CPA, as we call it. Uh, Greg, what is the CPA? Why is it necessary? Yeah, the Conscience Protection Act is actually very modest uh, legislation. It does not propose any substantive change or, or significant change to current law. It does three things. Uh, first, it codifies a policy that's been in place attached to appropriation riders since 2004, and that's called the Hyde-Weldon Amendment. The Weldon Amendment prohibits government discrimination against those who uh, decline to participate for whatever reason in abortion or to provide coverage for it. Um, it also uh, moves the Weldon uh, Amendment from uh, being a rider to permanent law. So that's, that's what this does. It's been a rider that has to be attached to appropriations language every year. Conscious Protection Act says now it's permanent law. Uh, so, again, no, no substantive change there. Second, it clarifies uh, the, the types of discrimination that are forbidden and the victims that Weldon is intended to uh, protect. And third, and perhaps most uh, significant is that it provides the ability for individuals whose rights are violated to sue in court, so to defend their rights in court, um, and that's that's a very important thing. It's it's a it's a right. It's a it's a remedy that um, those who are have, are victims of violations of other civil rights uh, or, uh, violations have had and 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 have. Um, so it simply provides that same right to others. This why is it important? Um, because we're seeing in recent years uh, a significant increase in violations of these laws. There's three major conscience laws on the books uh, that go back to 
um, after Roe versus Wade. The Church Amendment in, in, in the mid-70s uh, was a direct response to Roe v. Wade, and it prohibits uh, various entities uh, from discriminating against uh, individuals who declined to participate in abortion. Uh, the Coates-Snow Amendment, which was um, uh, followed in the in the uh, in the two uh, thousands, that um, said that uh, you you cannot require uh, trainees for in medical school to have to participate or be trained in abortions, uh, and then Hyde Weldon in two thousand and two in two thousand and two. So um, that the, the, we're seeing in recent years violations of that, and part of the reasons why there's been violations of it is because um, there's insignificant insufficient, I should say, enforcement mechanisms provided in the Hyde Weldon, in, in, in fact, all of these conscience laws. Um, it, 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 the only remedy a person has if their rights are violated under these laws is to file a complaint to the Office of Civil Rights in the Department of Health and Human Services. And what we saw during the Obama administration is these complaints were languishing for years, or even in the case of uh, the complaint in California where they uh, the state required insurance companies to cover abortion in direct violation of Weldon, uh, the Office of Civil Rights under the Obama administration said no violation. Um, we also saw in a case of uh, Nurse Kathy DiCarlo, who was forced to participate in an abortion, um, her, her complaint to Office of Civil Rights languished for years. She filed a lawsuit uh, to, to, against this action. And in the process of that lawsuit, found out that the church amendment, which was violated in her case, there was no right to sue in court. So that's what uh, the, the, the purpose of it is and the reason why it's needed. So, Greg, how many years has Hyde mm-hmm. Weldon been a writer every year, regularly being renewed and passed year after year? Yeah, it was first uh, enacted in 2004. So it's going on 18 years. Wow. Or 14 years. 14 years? Sorry, 14 years. It's yes. My, my, yeah. math, my math is uh, not so good. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, I would think that um, apart from kind of all the amendments and everything we're talking about, that just kind of common sense. Most people would say that if you believe that abortion is killing a person, you shouldn't be forced to perform one or participate in one. That just seems kind of basic. If you think you're doing something that's as as bad as killing, you shouldn't have to do it, right? So that, that part seems like just kind of common sense. And then when you talk about the legal precedent surrounding the issue, it seems like there's generally been a consensus about this. And yet, with the whether it's the new division in, in HHS that's supposed to enforce conscience protections um, or... Uh, the, or this laws like the laws like the CPA, you, you'll hear that like this is some new thing that we're demand that we're that um, people are making these excessive demands that um, it, it's made out to be as if it's this controversial thing when for a long time it really has not been controversial. Am I right that there generally had that there's been a consensus about this issue for a long time? Yeah, Aaron, you're absolutely right. And you can you can even go to objective criteria like polling that's been done for many, many years that shows that the vast majority of people support conscience protection. There was just a, a Marist poll done in December of uh, 2017 that showed uh, 54 to 38, uh, the population, those surveyed said that providers or organizations shouldn't be forced to perform or provide coverage for abortion. And that included 
over 40% of people who self-identified as, as quote-unquote pro-choice. Um, and women, actually, more than men, um, uh, said that people shouldn't be forced to participate in abortion. I think what you're seeing here really is a shift in uh, a, a radical, extreme shift in the abortion movement. They've, they've shifted away from uh, abortion as choice and even the pro-choice moniker to abortion as health care. And anybody who doesn't want to participate, you know, uh, is is discriminating against people who just want health care. Mm. And so that's why I think you're seeing these attacks against conscience laws. You're seeing them push for government funding of abortion, attacking the Hyde Amendment, uh, all kinds of very radical, very extreme positions to force people to participate in abortion. Um, in part, I think, because they've seen over the years a, sh- a shift away from uh uh, doctors and others wanting to participate in abortion. And they know there's the vast majority, as they point out, of counties around the country have no abortion provider, in their words. And they're worried about it. And so that's why they're looking at various ways to try to, to uh, institutionalize abortion as health care and force everybody to participate in it or to provide funding for it. I mean, it's just, it's interesting to me, just the shift I've seen in my own life uh, since I followed this kind of stuff, I think it must've been 12 or 13 years ago. Like I had a friend who identifies pro-choice who he would just say, you know, if you don't think like abortion, then don't get it or don't support it as, as if that's what we normally say about other, uh, crimes. But, um, but even then it's, it's amazing though, that that, that used to be the attitude that you heard things like that a lot. Um, just you're respecting privacy or whatever. Whereas it's it the shift to kind of like it's not enough to say if you don't like it, just don't do it. Even if you don't like it, you know, you you may have to do it or you're supposed to support it. I mean, it really is a change uh, around these sorts of issues, I think. Um, now, you mentioned, you know, that there have been issues with enforcing the laws that we already have. Um, and so that's one of the things the CPA does is it is it. It would give somebody whose rights had been violated a, a, a chance to ensure that their case could go to court. Uh, so, but tell us a little bit more, like what happens now if, for example, you mentioned Nurse DiCarlo, like if a nurse is coerced by her supervisor to participate in an abortion, like what sort of legal re- recourse does she have? I mean, you're, as you say, like all she can do is file a complaint. Is that what you're saying? That's correct. Um, so technically, somebody who there's strong conscience protections on federal conscience protections on the book. As I mentioned, the Church Amendment, the Code Snow Amendments, and, and the Hyde Weldon Amendments. Um, but what we're finding in more recent years, and, and the DiCarlo situation was a good example of that. It was assumed that uh, a person had a right to sue if their if their rights were violated under the Church Amendment. It wasn't until the DiCarlo case. Uh, where, where she tried to assert her rights in court, that it was discovered by uh, an appellate court saying, no, the, the Church Amendment provides no private right of action. So these kinds of recent attacks against the conscience laws have, have pointed out some of the deficiencies, and, and the prim- prim- primary one being that uh, there's insufficient uh, enforcement mechanisms. So technically, um, you know, in the Kathy DiCarlo situation, there were nurses in New Jersey who were forced to uh, be trained to do abortions. Um, uh, there's, there was a nurse in, in Illinois who was told that she had to be trained in abortions. Um, there's, there's been 
students who have applied for nursing school who are told that they have to be trained in abortions, uh, all in violation of federal law. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some cases, when that was pointed out, the institution backed off. But in some cases, that wasn't the case. And so um, that's why we need to have better enforcement. And right now, unfortunately, it relies upon one uh, remedy, and that's filing a, a complaint with OCR. And, and unfortunately, it seems like that is uh, whether that gets action seems to depend upon who's in the Oval Office. Mm-hmm. So uh, much like the disaster relief issue, uh, this seems like it would be common sense. Um, I'm a little naive, I know, that uh, I'm don't spend much time on Capitol Hill. <laughs> You're hopeful. Uh, Let's say yes, that. You're so, hopeful. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, like, as we've kind of have, you know, suggested, it would seem that it would only be, uh, you'd have to be pretty extremist to say that medical professionals should be forced to participate or perform or be trained in abortion. Uh, so, but, you know, like I said, I'm sure I'm being naive. How... How hopeful are are the two of you that this uh, passes? What are some of the major obstacles? Yeah, I mean, how 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 good are you feeling about this uh, go heading into? Uh, my understanding is March is going to be a critical month. Uh, so, what are your hopes? How hopeful can we be? Yeah, so I'm I am hopeful. Um, one of the things, one of the dynamics that's changed since um, in, in the last uh, what year, a little over a year, that has given us a little more hope is the person who's in the White House. Uh, president Trump has expressed that he would support this and sign this bill into law. The previous President Obama, um, when this issue was taken up by and voted on by the House in 2016, said he would veto it if it came to his desk. So that's very big. And, and typically, just to explain how, um, since one of the big obstacles, your question was obstacles, one of them, probably the main obstacle to getting any pro-life legislation passed is the Senate. Uh, I knew you were going to say that, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> so um, for those who aren't that familiar with the process, the, the Senate has a rule that allows for filibustering legislation. So um, and, and if, if a member, if the senator filibusters a piece of legislation, it requires 60 votes to stop the filibuster and get to a vote on the underlying bill. Um, this, unfortunately, we, we, while we have a majority of pro-life uh, votes in the Senate, we don't have 60 votes. And so that makes it very difficult to get legislation through the, the ordinary process of passing legislation. So what, what we've had to do in recent years is to try to get pro-life legislation, and in this case, the Conscience Protection Act, attached to must-pass legislation, specifically appropriation bills. The government has to be funded. So one way or another, appropriation bills have to be passed. So our hope has been to get this attached to must-pass appropriations bills. And so we are, believe it or not, where the Congress has punted uh, the fiscal year 2018 uh, final appropriation uh, package uh, time and time again. It was supposed to be done back in September. They've punted it a number of times with continuing resolutions that continue to fund the government but don't ultimately make the final uh, appropriation bill um, uh, decision. So we now have a situation where um, the the, the Congress is in a position where they are going to be making those, that final appropriation package decision by uh, the latter part of March, March 23rd. The current continuing resolution uh, goes through March 23rd. Every indication is that they've, they've got you know, budget 
caps in place now and agreements there that sort of opens the way for final negotiations on a on a fiscal year 2018 budget uh, or appropriations package. And so our hope is that the Conscience Protection Act, which is included on the House side in their appropriations package, will be included in that. And that decision is going to be made by uh, leadership, uh, majority and minority leadership in both the House and the Senate as well as uh, the, the, the chairman of the appropriation committees in the House and Senate. They usually make these final decisions, what's going to be in and what's not going to be in uh, a funding bill. But Greg, and it seems to me, and maybe Lauren could uh, chime in on this, but it seems to me that this is not a, just a, this is not really a pro-life vote. This is a, this is a first freedom vote. This is a conscience rights vote. It seems to me that this is something that if you're a U.S. Senator, that you could maybe <laughs> vote on as, you know, this is, this is your, your right of religious liberty. Absolutely, Mary. Speaking as a former Senate staffer, I can tell you <laughs> that it is quite the challenge, unfortunately. And I, it, there's been so much work on the Conscience Protection Act over the years, led by USCCB, making the point that this is really common sense policy. This is something that senators are already saying, that Congress is already saying every year that this is a protection in law. We're simply making sure that it can be enforced. Um, when there's actually a violation. And, you know, it's unfortunate because we we actually only have 49 reliable pro-life votes in the Senate. And then there's there's a couple of other Republicans who typically don't vote with us on the pro-life issues. And so in this in this final stretch, it's it's really about continuing to make that point that this is a common sense change where we're barely even moving the ball because this is something that has already been a part of what's in the law and we're simply making sure that it can be enforced. So we hope that argument will prevail with Congress as a whole and they'll be willing to accept it, but um, we're going to have to see. So we've had good news, some maybe hopeful news. Uh, We can hold out, keep our, uh, we'll say our prayers through, um, and over the course of the next month that we get some more good news. Um, I think, I mean, one of the main uh, things that I think about, like I said, kind of a bit of an outsider to some of these sorts of um, uh, struggles in a way, but, uh, you know, from what I can tell, you see that getting to good legislation, it takes time. It's kind of a slog. Uh, and I can just imagine that somebody who has responded to one of our action alerts, whether it's from the USCCB or NCHLA. National Committee for Human Life Amendment. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Just, you know, making sure people know the acronyms we use inside the Beltway yeah. here. So, yeah, <laughs> or, or, or even any other, any other um, advocacy group for either pro-life or conscience protection or religious liberty. Um, you know, you, you, you issue comes up in the news cycle you respond to an action alert. Maybe you even get take that next step and not just send an email, but make a phone call or even a, a visit or something like that. Um, it could be easy to then think, are we still, you're still trying to get conscience protection? <laughs> you know, I mean, it, that, I, like it, it takes, it takes time and it takes patience. It takes persistence and the two of you are really, I mean, you're in the middle of it in a way that most of us aren't. Uh, and so I just, if you know, to kind of close us out, maybe you could offer a, a few 
bits. I mean, this is kind of shifting gears a little bit, but to, to say a little bit about how it is that you stay grounded in your faith, how you don't get pessimistic or just despair or give up. Because uh, I think that it, it, it's, it can be very... It can be very easy to to get. I'm probably known as being one of the more pessimistic people in the in the office. So maybe I'm asking you just to tell me um, <laughs> how can we remain? Hopeful? How do I stay yeah. hopeful? Um, yeah, what what can we do to stay grounded in our faith, keep hope alive? Um, you know, so that we can continue to uh, bear witness to a society that respects life and that uh, respects human dignity. Well, Aaron, as Christians, which we all are, uh, it's important for us to remember that we operate from victory, not just for victory. And I think that's a crucial foundation for all that we do, that the battle against death has been won definitively once and for all by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so all we're asked to do by our Lord is to persist and fighting evil. I mean, evil still exists. It still works throughout. It walks throughout our world. It undermines us in every way. It tempts us. It uh, does very bad things. Um, so even though it, that ultimate battle has been won, we have to persist in opposing evil and doing good. And if we do, and what our Lord asks us to do is to do it faithfully. Um, success is in his hands. It's not in ours. I mean, we just have to use the talents and abilities he's given us to, to the fullest way in which we can. Um, and persist. So faithful persistence is what we're called to do. And we should be, we should do that with joy and confidence of knowing that the ultimate battle has been done. You know, I mean, I think that's one of our biggest challenges, Aaron, is we, we need to be joyful. We need to reflect in our actions, the faith that we profess, which is that the battle has been won. Um, and I would say, you know, personally that we need to be resorting to and faithful to the sacraments. I encourage people to to go to daily mass, daily prayer, mental prayer, the rosary. These are all very, very important things um, for us to do. We, this is a spiritual battle, and we need to be spiritually fortified, or we can't do it. Uh, I couldn't do this without having that regular spiritual fortification. Yeah, it's it's a joy. I, I'm, I have the pleasure of working with Greg mm-hmm. in the pro-life office, and we pray a lot, and we we laugh at staff meetings whatever, whenever we can take the opportunity to laugh. And so, you know, and I have the honor of, of attending daily mass with both Greg's usually there, Lauren's there a lot, Aaron. So, Lauren, what can you add about personal personal? Greg, support? that was amazing. <laughs> what, can we do a separate podcast? Yeah, preach it. Your preach it, Greg. Spiritual advice. I love it. No, I... I I love it. I think just echoing what Greg already said, that the Lord calls us to be faithful and not necessarily successful. And I think discouragement is from the devil, that he wants us to be discouraged and get down and, and lose our hope. So doing our work with joy, being happy happy warriors on Capitol Hill, and being faithful and speaking the truth, we know that even when we we meet opposition to some of these policies, that it's the truth. And so we're going to keep saying that. And I think that ultimately our, our fruit, we will be bearing fruit in our efforts, whether it's now or later. So that's definitely what keeps me going. And it's been amazing to be on staff here at USCCB already and see my colleagues, my coworkers talking about these spiritual gifts, the opportunity to go to daily mass here is just incredible. So I do. Yeah. And I just, to echo what both of you said, I, I, 
I do think that it can be very freeing, as you say, to remember that it's that that it's we're not responsible for kind of moving the ball in history. That it's that that it's God who is directing things, and so we we can bear witness, be faithful, fortify our faith, whether it's daily mass, uh, confession, the sac- you know other sacraments. Uh, so I think that that is. It, it certainly, it, it definitely set, can free us from the anxiety that can come from thinking like, I have to be the one to convince mm-hmm. this person or make this the perfect argument mm-hmm. or whatever. That's yeah. that's pride right there working, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, and I find the humility. I, I constantly look for ways to grow in humility. Mm-hmm. I, I would just add that it's also important for us to remember that as Christians, our most fundamental responsibility in all of this work is the salvation of souls. Mm -hmm. And that has to be what drives us no matter what battlefield we're working on, whether it's fighting abortion or other kinds of of attacks against human life and its dignity, that um, we are about the salvation of souls. And that means that how we do what we do is as important as what we do. You know, again, that we that we always remember that those who are who disagree with us and sometimes can do very bad and ugly things, they're not our enemy. They are, as Peter Christ says, our patients. You know, the devil is the enemy. And so we need to look at people who disagree with us, not as the enemy, but as the patients. And that, and that we should, first and foremost, always demonstrate the love of Christ and how we deal with them. And that love is what will transform them. And, and ultimately um, help them to move in the direction of seeing the truth. I think the, the last thing I would just say is how everything matters. Everything matters. Every single prayer for the Conscience Protection Act, every single letter, phone call, you know, trying to go to a town hall with a legislator in these next few weeks as we're, we're entering this really important stretch for this legislation. It's not just the people on the government relations team or the people in the policy office. It's its everyone working together and people who are listening to this podcast are all a part of the work that's being done and we're really grateful for that support. Well, I think that is a good place to end. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. It's great to hear from you and I, I think Lauren's right. I think that we should do another one with y'all uh, where, where we just focus more on some of like the spirituality and and political life. So I think that that would be a a fruitful one. So I look forward to having y'all back. Uh, Lauren's case, you just come down the hall. So it'd be uh, great to do that. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Aaron and Mary. Thank you. (laughs) This is Aaron Matthew Weldon. And Mary McCluskey. Thank you so much for joining us for the first Freedom Podcast.